Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 470. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please do visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with Roger L. Martin. Roger's a trusted strategy advisor to the CEOs of companies worldwide, including Procter & Gamble, Lego, and Ford. In 2017, Roger was named the world's number one management thinker by Thinkers50. He's a professor emeritus at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he served as dean from 1998 to 2013 and was named Global Dean of the Year by the leading business school website, Poets and Quants. He's also an author, and his latest book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness, by HBR Press, is the culmination of a lifetime's work in education and advising CEOs. In this conversation with Roger, we discuss the premise behind his new book, Working With and Transforming Culture, Dealing with Received Wisdom and Best Practices, his work with the XPNG CEO, A.G. Laffley, the gap-filling machine that is our brain, and many more fascinating elements to make leadership more effective. You'll find all the show notes on mintodile.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Roger Martin, welcome to the Minter Dialogue Great to have you on the show. We got to exchange a little bit before going online about some um, common experiences or at least common uh, passions with regard to tennis, yes. uh, Le Canada. Um, in your own words, who's Roger Martin? Oh, I'm a strategist at, at heart. So I like to write about uh, business strategy. I am a former dean. Uh, of a business school, University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, and I now write and advise CEOs. Brilliant. And amongst them, some pretty darn interesting ones. So, um, Roger, you've just finished this book, A New Way to Think, Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness, uh, which releases May 3rd, as I understand it, at least over here in Europe. You've published already 12 books. What was the instigation motivation for writing this a new way to think well it it developed over time actually uh and it developed by again we were talking earlier uh through dialogue with a friend of yours david champion who is my my primary editor at harvard business review and we we've done about 20 articles uh together uh and what we did was we noticed over time that our that my articles tended to have a form uh, and that form was uh, it took on a model a business model of, so, of some sort like you know in order to maximize shareholder value you must give stock-based compensation to incentivize senior management that's a model that is is utilized throughout the business world so my articles would, uh, would take on a model like that and say, this is the model that's being used. It actually isn't producing uh, the outcomes it promises. So it's not saying 
uh, you shouldn't use that model because I don't like its outcome. It's, it's no, you think it is going to do this. It doesn't. Here's a better model. And so together we, we decided, gee, we could, we could have a whole book on that theme that would take some of the HBR articles, write uh, additional uh, chapters on other themes where I have a bee in my bonnet about a model that I see in operation that just isn't working. And that was the genesis of the, the book. Uh, and I, uh, if, if you read the foreword or, uh, and acknowledgements, uh, you'll see it, it uh, cites your friend David and my, and my friend David because he was instrumental in, in creating the concept of the book. Hey, David, I should say. Um, so <laughs> when, when you look at these models, a couple of thoughts. One is best practices are basically just everyone converging on average if everybody does the same thing. And or times have changed. We need to move on. Yeah. And sometimes the average that's converged on is really a crummy average. Uh, but I think you've pointed out one of the reasons why these models persist. Uh, it's because your crummy result from using it isn't crummier than the, those, of, those, those of others around you. So you sort of say, well, you know, I guess that's as good as it gets. Um, and, you know, I, I don't believe that in many of the, the cases, there's a way to do it uh, better. And, and sometimes you have to change because the world has changed. But on a number of, a number of the ones that I talk about in the book, no, the world hasn't changed in a, in a way that makes a difference. This was just a bad idea, right? And, there, and you know, the world is full of kind of bad ideas that you figure out later are not such a good idea. You know, it was once seemed like a good idea to make all the pipes in your city of Rome out of lead because that was malleable and it was easy to make pipes out of. And then it sort of turned out to be a kind of bad idea when everybody started dying of, uh, of lead poisoning. Um, but until such time, that was uh, the model. Um, and, and it just irritates me to see it because I'm, I'm sad for the people uh, uh, using them uh, that a model gets established um, a model got established that said, you know, ulcers uh, are peptic ulcers in your stomach are a function of excess uh, acid in your stomach. And so we should treat it with antacids. And when there's bad ulceration of the stomach, we should chop those, uh, those pieces out. Turns out that that's not what causes ulcers. It's a uh, bacteria. But for about 90 years, we uh, prescribed bland diets and, and ulcer surgery, which in all cases was a net negative for the patient compared to what, what, uh, uh, what could have been done. So I just, don't, I just don't like when we converge as a community. In my case, the community I worry about is the community of business executives, business decision makers. They converge on a model that does not produce what they think it will produce, uh, regardless of whether life is changing or not. Well, so first of all, I'm reacting about health thing. I'm thinking, well, is granny's recipes not working anymore? And should we actually listen to traditional Western medicine 
as much as we do? <laughs> no, <feel> like... <laughs> in a word, no. And, and, and of course, that, that, certainly, that certainly would be an example of, of models that are changing. I mean, there, there are many things about Eastern medicine uh, that have been poo-pooed in Western medicine for a long time, right? Oh, that herb fixes that? Come on, give me a break. Uh, acupuncture uh, acupuncture what the hell is that sticking a bunch of needles in you so yeah. and and you know this, this this is how the world works i mean thomas kuhn pointed that out kind of a long time ago and you know structure of scientific revolutions is that you converge on a on dominant uh theory uh and any anomaly is ignored or disputed as an as an anomaly for a long time until there are enough anomalies uh, and then you get a scientific revolution rather than normal science and that's what i'm calling for in a bunch of aspects of management is mm -hmm. it is time there are too many anomalies uh you, you, know, you know you would think after using incentive compensation wouldn't you think? So that's the first thing. Wouldn't you think incentive compensation uh, for performance uh, has been around for you know at least sixty years? You could argue eighty, uh, but sixty to eighty years. You'd think there would be one study out there that would show a positive correlation between use of incentive compensation and firm performance, not individual performance firm performance because otherwise i don't think it makes a lot of sense spending hundreds of millions of person hours a year designing and managing and tracking incentive compensation systems right you, you kind of think it would have to show better firm performance i haven't found one yet well i mean at some level the ceo's compensation is typically tied to shareholder performance which somehow is linked to firm performance is it not yeah, yeah, but that one CEO, there's no, there's no uh, demonstration of that. So that's one form of this broader question of monetary incentive compensation. So providing CEOs stock-based compensation that supposedly aligns the interests of shareholders and management doesn't have demonstrated positive effect. It has a demonstrated positive effect on one thing for sure, which is the skyrocketing of of uh, CEO compensation, right? Since since that theory came into place, CEO compensation like to like has gone up at least in real terms 10 times and, and probably more likely 20-ish uh, times. Shareholders, no better. Uh, and no hint that the ones that were had more higher, more severe stock-based compensation uh, uh, do better than the ones with, with less stock-based compensation. So wouldn't you, like if, if, you, if you were sort of watching that and saying, gee, we're spending at least 10X more on these CEOs and we're kind of not getting anything for it, wouldn't you sort of say, hmm, maybe that's not such a great theory? But it sounds good, and, and this is this is how many of these theories stay. It sounds good. Well, you know, if the shareholders do better, the CEO does better. Well, it's not true, right? Right. So uh, just uh, imagine a a situation where the CEO takes over 
a company and the stock price is 100 and the CEO immediately upon taking over says, uh, gee, I've discovered all this horrible stuff. I thought the firm was doing much better than it is. That wasn't revealed to me, but it's a, it's a disaster. Uh, and I'm going to have to do a whole bunch of fixing. The stock price goes down to 50. Uh, the CEO works for three years, cutting a whole bunch of people, cutting product lines, who knows, doing all the restructuring-y things that are actually easier to do than building a business, um, and gets the stock price back up to 100. So the shareholders who were matched with the CEO, they were there on the share register on day one when the CEO came in and are in the share register three years later, got zero, right? Went to 100, down to 50, slowly back up to 100. The CEO gets rich because the board will give them lots and lots of stock options. So he or she doesn't get depressed when it's down at 50 and they'll get a new tranche every year and they'll make a, a ton of money. So yeah, it turned- The board members also have stock. And they're happy when the stock price goes up as well. And so, hallelujah, we're all happy. Yes, although if they were shareholders who appointed the CEO, they won't be saying hallelujah, right? They'll be saying, I'm back exactly where I was three years ago. I haven't made a dime, except that, except we gave them a stock-based compensation too and gave them each another tranche after one year when it was at 50 and after two years when it was at 75. And so they're making money on their own stock-based uh, uh, compensation. But did shareholders writ large uh, get ahead? The answer, the answer, is, the answer is no. And it, it, and it turns out that if you look more carefully at it, the incentives for the CEO under those cir circumstances are at direct odds with shareholders. Their incentives are to make the stock move up and down, play that, and pick their exit at a time uh, where their stock-based compensation pays out. So what was the highest stock price of General Electric in its history when Jack Welsh retired with $900 million of stock-based uh, 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 compensation? I mean, is, is that sort of terrible and evil? No, it's an incentive, right? You're insubordinate actually, if you, do not, uh, if you do not perform in a consistent way with what you're incentivized to perform. And he did, he left with the stock price in the sky, a market cap of $444 billion. He did what you're supposed to. Now, many would say, and he set it up for the crash that's resulted in GE not being you know, a terribly consequential company anymore. It'll be three pieces of, 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 uh, of companies. Nobody sees it as a, a, an American icon uh, anymore that we should, we should follow. That's for so sure. those are the consequences of the CEO sort of obeying the edicts of, of stock-based compensation. But that's just one. I mean, I don't, I don't want to make, make in some sense all about that, but that's an example of something where where what I would think is if this has been around since the 70s, so 50 years, you would have such clear demonstration that this model worked, that you would say, we should keep using that model because it works so well. 
right? It's like going to get your teeth checked up by a dentist once a year. Fewer cavities, better teeth held. What's not to like about that model? It performs, right? Well, I want to I jump in because... First of all, I was thinking about how there's a saying which basically says in big companies, mediocrity rises to the top. And within the concept of mediocrity, I sort of see averageness and the idea that we should hire, we should hire these consultants because their name is very important or well-known. Mm-hmm. Let's call them Bain, McKinsey, or whatever, BCG. That's mm-hmm. safety. And yet when I hear models as a general concept, Roger, I'm... I tend to think of those as best practices and averageness at some level, because maybe they're the best model available, but it's, it's sort of about, well, me too. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to copy them. And yet we know just like this compensation of a CEO, the road to success, I'm going to say, if I lay it out is, is really about culture. And, and so these models are all very interesting, but if you don't have the right culture, Drucker would say, well, then your strategy ain't going to work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the two pieces of what you said, I mean, the one, one piece of, yes, one of the greatest delusions of, of executives is thinking they can do the same as everybody else, all their competitors, and get super normal results, right? You know, no, it doesn't kind of work that way. And when, if, if you believe SAP's uh, uh, posters in airports, which I have no reason to disbelieve that sort of 90 plus percent of the global 1000 has an SAP system installed, then you're not gonna get advantage by having an SAP system uh, installed. That doesn't mean you can't get advantage by using it differently and better than your competitors, but then that violates your principle of they're doing it at, at, at an average level. You, you still have to think about, about diverging uh, from, from the norm. And yes, and, and, and culture, abs- absolutely. Uh, I mean, it is important to note that, that Peter Drucker never said, has never that's recorded true. as having yeah, said- Yeah, I know, that's true, I agree, for, I agree. For, for yes. Drucker, that having been said, he felt culture was incredibly strong, uh, important. Um, he, he saw culture and strategy kind of working side by side rather than in opposition. Uh, but uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and in many sense, you know, kind of managing your culture, managing in a way that pro- produces a culture that is necessary for your strategy to be distinctive is a, a key job of senior management, of a very important senior management job. And as I point out in the book, there's only one way to get a better culture than you have now. And that starts with your interactions, your interpersonal interactions with others. Um, And, you know, Kremlin watching does not only happen in Moscow, Uh, it happens in every corporation and they will watch Everybody will watch how the most senior people in the organization, CEO first and foremost, interacts interpersonally with other people in the organization. And if you come to the CEO and say, you know, the thing that, you know, whatever we, we all decided to invest on isn't, in isn't working, and here's the reasons why, and he or she kind of rips you to pieces in front of everybody else, 
you can say anything you want about culture. You can have any formal system you want. The culture will be, do not be the bearer of bad news, regardless of whether the bad news is legitimate, true, false, whatever, never uh, uh, do that. Uh, you must hide bad news as long as humanly possible and try to convince somebody else to give it to them. That's, that's the culture. And it was produced, it was produced by interpersonal interactions. Uh, and that's, that's why CEOs are so important. Every last thing they do will be watched. Every last thing an EVP does will be watched by everybody below them. Everything an SVP does will be watched by everybody below them. It just cascades all the way down the, the company. And that is what produces culture. It produces a way that everybody interprets. Ah, that's what happened in that meeting. That, that person was spanked. Uh, so you get spankings when these things uh, occur. If you want to be spanked, then do those things. If you don't want to be spanked, like most people, don't don't do that thing. So that that doesn't sound like a model, though, Roger. That that just sounds like being real, being aware of who you are, and and then in each moment, uh, understand that the way you shake a hand, the way you look at somebody, the way you listen is how you change the culture. It's, it sounds much more complex than just some sort of simple model to put in place. Well, I mean, it depends on your definition of a model. You, yes. you just, in the last 30 seconds, defined a model for me, right? So, uh, so, uh, so that, that's when I say model, that's what I mean. The, the, you, you gave, you gave a, a set of self-directives in some sense. Right. Uh, that are structured around some some principles, uh, and it's different than the model for culture change that's generally used, which is we will announce the culture we want. Never works. Right. We will reorganize to get the culture we want. We will flatten the number <laughs> of levels and all this crap. That never works. So I'm I'm saying a, a model of the sort you just described is what is is the only thing that I've seen in 40 years of watching, uh, make something happen uh, differently. But I, I have that definition of a model. It's, it, it's a construct, it's sort of an if-then if, if construct in your mind, right? That guides what you do. And you had the if-then, if I behave this way, I will get this kind of reaction. And over time, that will produce this kind of outcome. That's an if-then construct that that then would guide your actions um, and help you. That's what a model is supposed to do uh, when you're about to say, you know, I told you to do that and you didn't do it, you moron. You stop yourself, right? And, and, and have a, con a conversation to say, okay, I, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm not thrilled uh, uh, with that, but we need to unravel why. Why did this not work well? Did we have a bad idea? Did did uh, did the way we rolled it out be bad? Did we get unlucky? Uh, did something happen that we couldn't have predicted? Let's 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 diagnose this. That that will then uh, have a different cultural uh, outcome as opposed to I'm mad at you because things didn't work out the way I hoped. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. 
Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The, um, the song that comes to my mind as I listen to you, Roger, is I am the model of a modern major general, from Gilbert and Sullivan. So uh, yes. indeed, the model story works in that regard. So yeah. in your in your book, you have this one piece, uh, this phrase, which I, I picked out, which is the brain, it turns out, is not so much an analytical machine as a gap-filling machine. It takes noisy, incomplete information from the world and quickly fills in the missing on the basis of past experience, end quote. You talk about that as processing fluency. So tease it out for us a little bit. I thought that was a really interesting piece. Sure. Um, so this would be um, like if, if uh, uh, you were walking along the soda aisle in a, in a store and you hadn't gotten yet to a, to a place where you could read the labels of the, the cans if you saw a can with with a very familiar red, the red of Coke, you would your brain would fill it in and say, "Well, that's Coke." And if it's a blue can, that's that's uh, Pepsi, right? That that's the kind of thing that the the brain, when it's had this experience many times, will will fill in to make it easier for the brain to do the work it wants to do. And if your brain, if you're, I'll make it up, I suspect you don't drink Coke or Pepsi. Maybe it's- maybe You were right. It's Sonny no, or, or Aquafina. Uh, but if you were, if, if your intent was to restock your Coke supply, your brain has to do very little work, very little work. It doesn't have to get close enough to read the can. Um, it knows there's, uh, that that's Coke. And you mindlessly put that in your in your shopping cart, and you're off to the races. And you've used very little uh, of of your precious processing uh, uh, capability to, uh, to do that. Um, it's the same thing that happens with words. Uh, if the first letter and the last letter of the word is there, and the middle letters are, are are made all fuzzy, you can generally figure out what that what that word is. So, what does this mean for a company? A company wants to make sure that the that their customers have the ability to utilize a really high level of processing fluency with respect to their their product um, and you have processing fluency with your favorite website right uh, you're a tennis player if you go to the ATP website or the WTA web website um, you don't sort of say, oh, I wonder where the rankings are. Um, you know, your mind like just goes to the ranking tab because you know exactly where it is and, 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 and boom, you're onto the ranking page and you say, oh, okay, whatever. Casper uh, Rood is now ninth ranked, right? You, you, have, you have that ability. Whereas, whereas if somebody was trying to convince you uh, to, oh, no, 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 atp.com, 
and that for others is the Association of Tennis Professionals, the male tour, WTA is the female tour, uh, ATP.com as you well. Well, no, if you, they, they're saying, oh, no, 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 he's a tennis fan. We got to get him to get him to, to use allabouttennis.com. Uh, and so you click on allabouttennis.com. You have nowhere, no idea where anything is on it of the sort you, you want. You have zero processing fluency for, uh, for that. You've got to start from the very start and start to learn that. Uh, and maybe the hundredth time you go back, you have this sort of automaticity that you've long since had with ATP.com. And, and so good luck to allabouttennis.com in getting your business. Your mind is going to say, your subconscious is going to scream at your conscious and saying, what are you doing? So, what are you, why did you, why did you click on that? You moron. I mean, it'll be yelling <laughs> at you. It'll be yelling at you because you're making it work like a dog. In one of the, another poignant or strong statement you made is that we tend to over rely on data. Mm. And I was wondering what the link is between that processing fluency, which sounds like a very computerized idea, uh, at least an image of the brain, and this concept or maybe of intuition and imagination, which are far more creative concepts. You know? And how does that link into the role of a CEO? Sure. Well, my objection to data is again, it's a it's a it's a model where we somehow have interpreted what Aristotle, who invented the scientific method, it was formalized two thousand years later by if you're like you probably you think it was Bacon and Newton. If you're Italian, you think it was Galileo. If you're French, you think it's uh, Descartes. Uh, but it's a misinterpretation of of what he said, which which is. He created the scientific method. So if you want to understand the cause of the given effect, you go out and collect data and see what is causing uh, what. Um, but Aristotle pointed out in something that is not taught virtually to anybody on the face of the planet, right? It's, it's gone in the midst of, uh, of, of time. Uh, he said, but that's for the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are, right? That's for the part of the world uh, that cannot change. And an, and an example of that would be if I, if I have a pen in my hand and I let go of it, it'll drop. It, it drops 100 years ago, it dropped 10 years ago, it dropped in England, it drops in, in, in America, it drops in Antarctica, and you can, you can be uh, damn sure that it'll drop 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, because gravity is not going to change. Pens are going to drop. Um, but he said, pens may no longer exist. <laughs> they may no longer exist. That's true. But if you happen Another to thought. have one, yeah. If you happen to have one, um, but that's that's that is that in and of itself is a good. But he said there's another part of the world where things can be other than they are, right? And so Space. if you ask if you ask the question if you ask the question how many smartphones were there in 1999, the answer would be zero. The first one appeared in 2000. How many are there now? Last time I checked, 4.4 billion. That's part of the world where things can be other than they are. And what he pointed out is in that part of the world, using data from the past will not help you in any way about the future. In fact, it'll probably convince you that that future will never happen, right? And so and that's what's happening in the world. We're having this sort of crisis of big companies 
feeling they're not innovative enough and being disrupted disrupted by little companies. That's because the big companies are are busy collecting collecting data that demonstrates to them that things that the little companies who just say we're going to go try this th those will, those will never work. It'll never happen. And then they wake up ten years later, and the little company is now bigger than bigger than them. Unfortunately for the little company that's gotten big, they, they now insist on proving everything with, da with, uh, with data. But in, in, in relation to the, the concept of processing uh, fluency, essentially, if you're going to be good at dealing with the future, what Aristotle said is that their thinking involves imagining possibilities and choosing the one for which the most compelling argument can be made. How do you imagine possibilities the answer is you put together pieces of things that are, are different uh, than your, your situation, perhaps maybe a single data point, and you have a way of processing those. You learn how to say, well, that might relate to this. That's what Aristotle said. A analogy and metaphor are the most, the most important thinking skills. That's what, that's what, uh, what he said. And so this is where you get, you know, your your countryman, uh, and, and it goes to goes to the uh, uh, James Dyson goes to the sawmill and sees a, a, a sawmill cyclone and says, "I could use that in a vacuum cleaner to make a better uh, vacuum cleaner." You have Johnny Ive, uh, the famous Apple designer, saying, "Wow, uh, Savoy uh, cam uh, cameras came out." In, in the 60s, and instead of being dark brown and black like all other cameras, they uh, they were all these multiple colors, right? Uh, and uh, uh, why don't we make the computer, which we'll call the iMac, in tangerine and grape and all these, these colors? And so, so in some sense, those great designers have a have a different sort of processing fluency, right? They're used to processing analogies to come up with entirely new possibilities. And that's a skill I, uh, I argue, I just wrote a piece on this this week, I argue it is a skill that everybody needs to develop if they want to create the future. So the literary person that I pretend to be would suspect that analogies and metaphors inserted within the context of stories are a useful model. Yes, yes, very much so. And you know, it 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 pretty much turns out that the brain science is is pretty clear on this. Which is, if if I gave you ten facts, and they were I just gave you them as ten random facts, and then I gave you ten random facts of the same ilk uh, within the context of a story, a coherent story in which those ten facts were were part of and then ask you to recall those 10 facts, you'd recall more uh, in, if, if, of the facts embedded in a story and you'd recall them more accurately and you'd recall them faster. Uh, so the human brain likes stories. When people say, can you give me an example of that? They're not sort of expressing a, some kind of a, you know, a, a preference their brain is asking them, could you get me an example so I can understand that? In my experience, Roger, I've, having run business and, and seen how it is within a large corporate structure, the challenge in the interpretation or the relaying of stories is to insert an emotional 
personal connection. Because if I'm just telling you some sort of analytical story of, you know, it's been told a million times by everyone else, but I, I don't insert some of me into it as a CEO, the people, it's an eye-rolling exercise. Yeah, I, I, I think... I think it's a spectrum. So I think you're right. I think the, the more of a personal connection that the recipient of the story hears, I think the more they'll want to grab onto it and, and pay attention uh, to it. So, so I would agree. And that's why you know, being able to tell stories uh, and having them be you know, kind of personally meaningful, right? Is when, when CEOs themselves go out and visit customers and can come back to their people and say, man, I was out with that customer uh, today and half of what she said filled me with pride and half of uh, what she said filled me with shame. Um, and here's, here's, here's the shame side of it. Uh, and here's why it made me feel uh, shameful. She said she liked the, you know, the quality of the product when she used it, but but when she called our, 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 our uh, you know, helpline, uh, they were rude and dismissive, right? You know, that kind of, that kind of, that, that kind of story, I think, will have a, a powerful impact. So you talk about how with Laffley, who, with whom you wrote a book, and, and obviously you know PNG particularly well about the idea of home visits and everything at L'Oreal, we, we used to make that, I mean, that was something of a, an epic, heroic experience, taking a CEO out because we, we put uh, purple velvet cloth uh, around every part of the journey. Potentially, he might take a left here, but we need to fix the OAH piece here. And, and the, oh, he might see that store. Well, we need to fix the front there. I mean, and, and cosmetic is such the great term. We were very cosmetic in our approach to making that home visit just as perfect as it gets. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely hideously. I, and I, frankly, I think that most companies tend to be motivated to do that because, oh, the trip was brilliant. You did a great job. Or the trip was shit. You're going to get fired. Well, I guess I'm going to make the trip brilliant at no matter the cost. And, and OJ, uh, Owen Jones said, well, I even know they're doing that, but at least they have the money to do it. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, I mean, sort of if, in some sense, the, the, I, there's a rule that I apply to life, which is every game gets game. And as soon as you know it's a game, you start to game it. Uh, and and uh, um, we forget and, the bigger picture. And, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah. We, we, go to, and, we go to the. Yeah. No, no, no. I, it's you're 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 right, and 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 again, this gets back to our culture conversation. It's it's you have to think really carefully about everything you do when you're in that position of of power, uh, and there's a reason why I'm sure the, those those uh, in-home visits were staged so much, is that at one point some CEO of L'Oreal, you know, beat the crap out of some poor person for a crummy in-home visit where the housewife or the teenager, whoever uh, the, the in-home visit was, was about, you know, said all sorts of uh, uh, kind of nasty things about L'Oreal products and the CEO blew up at somebody. And so, but there's a, 
I would argue there's a great difference if the CEO is agnostic to that, but comes back from it and says to the people involved, man, here are the 10 things that I learned out of that. Uh, I learned we do a good job here. We do a crummy job here. We do a good job. Da, 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 da. Uh, and uh, what do you guys uh, who, who are watching uh, kind of think? And, and, you know, if you were me, kind of what would, what sorts of things would you prioritize uh, going forward on that? Right? Well, I feel like um, the issue is we still have the hippo idea and we try to feed the top with what he or she we think he or she wants to hear yes yes and, and we haven't broken that model by a long way no roger i want to get that, into but I, i'll blame that more on this on ceo behavior than i'll blame it on the people working for them right well i would even argue that it's a little bit along the title of the ceo as opposed to the individual because a lot of times the head swelling the the it just comes with the position of power you've been successful mm -hmm. for 30 years now you're a ceo why should i change anything i've done in my past yeah. i they put me in this position because it's an acknowledgement that everything i've done is right and yeah. the idea of questioning myself it, that can be that can lose time so i've got to go with what i know and i go with the people i know yeah. and i keep the same team and so diversity of of thinking goes out the door yeah. i've got a set time 100 days to fix this blah 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 and all of a sudden we're shortcutting and absolutely and and then then and that same ceo then complains about the culture say i can't get anybody to be honest with me i don't know why you know uh, you know i can't get any creativity nobody's willing to take any risks right there'll be uh, this litany of complaints that will come out of the ceo uh and yeah you know we get keep getting beaten up by uh, these diversity people on the outside because we don't have any any uh, diverse element to our senior management team you know why doesn't somebody work on that Right. So, so they've done all these things. They, they've got their team of people who look like them and act like them uh, and who uh, who have to perform exactly as 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 uh, he or she wants. Typically, he right. He wants. Yeah, of course. So they create a world. I mean, it, what you've described is a situation of, of the of the, uh, the the person who goes into a jail uh locks himself or herself into a jail uh, cell and throws the keys to the other side of the room and then starts shaking the bars saying, let me Why out of here. here. Out of Why am I in here? Let me out of here. Right. It's no, well, I certainly you've made your prison and you're going to, you're going to be in it. Made your bed, sleep in it. Yeah. I've, yes. I've certainly experienced a lot of this. I want to reserve the last part, Roger, for something which um, has struck me with my conversation with friends who worked at PNG and you talk about it in your company, which is, the role of debate at PNG, and and further at another time in the book, you talk about the art of rhetoric uh, from Aristotle, and and so rhetoric, of course, there's storytelling at some level within that, but the role of conversation and debate, I'd love for you to say, we need more. Why do we need it? How do you do it in a company? And when do you do it? I guess. Sure. So um, I wouldn't argue that we need more conversations. Uh, we just need better quality conversations. Um, and on that front, uh, I mean, I take my lead from my most important uh, uh, academic mentor, uh, the, the late Chris Argerus. Um, and if you could 
only do one thing, right? If you could only have one thing followed, right? As, 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 as behavior, the thing that he would say is, is you must combine advocacy and inquiry in your conversation. Uh, and that is what makes conversation better rather than worse. So rather than saying, here's what I think, you say, here's what I think and why I think what I think. To what extent is that consistent with how you think or do you have a different point of view? Um, if people did that consistently in conversations, you'd have generative solutions, you'd have better answers because it's an invitation for the other person to, to delve more deeply into why you're saying this is how, this is what I think. And they will feel more comfortable telling you how they think because they will expect you to respond in kind, right? And so if you both, I mean, the reason we think what we think is because we've climbed up a ladder We've saw, seen data and information and we've added reasoning to it to, to come to a point of view. And if my point of view at the top of my ladder is different from your point of view at the top of yours, there is only one way that's productive to solve that. The unproductive way is to say, I'm sorry, I outrank you. So what I say goes, right? Or another is, I guess we're gonna just have to agree to disagree, right? But the only way that you're going to get to something better is if I explore your ladder and you explore my ladder. And during that exploration, we both discover new things that would be the source of a better solution still. So presuming both are open and yet are able to hold their line, because if I'm subordinate to you, Roger, and I say, well, Roger, I think this, and you say, well, I think this, there's always going to be a little bit of a bias to think your thing, your thought, Roger, is better than my thought somehow, especially if it's in a public forum. Yes. And so in that, if you want to have good conversation, the, there's a higher onus on the more senior of the two to say, to say so let's say you're, you're my subordinate and you come to me and say, uh, you know, I think blue and, and, and uh, I'm, I'm, I think uh, uh, green. What I should say is now here's, here's my thought. I, I actually think green, not blue, um, but there's gotta be a good reason why you think blue and it may contain something that I just have not thought about because green is what I came, came, came up, uh, up with. Um, so could you just take me through how you got to blue? What were you paying attention to? What did you think about, right? Um, and, and that's more my onus than your onus, because I do have a power advantage, uh, over you. It's unlikely you're going to do that with me. Now, if you're ever going to be me, right. Or me plus two levels up, um, you would have said after I say, but I think blue, you would have said to me, well, boss. I need to really understand that because I've, I've done all this working or I, I, I say green, uh, I've done all this work that leads me to blue. You're, you're my boss, which means you have more experience uh, than me. You say green. Can you just take the time to talk me through green? Um, 
and 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 then then if you're interested, uh, I'll tell you what got me to blue, and let's see if we can get uh, a better answer than what we've got now. Then you, if you say that, you'll probably be CEO someday. But would most you, people yeah, would say, "Oh, I'm, I'm too scared to do that." And would you not say that it's kind of stronger to have that in a public space? No, no, it you can could just put, do no, one to one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it can put more pressure on the that conversation to do it in a in a public uh, uh, space. I'm not saying don't, but I think it's a uh, I think it's a good time, good thing to do it one on one, and well, and it all it all comes down to are you genuinely curious about the other person's point of view? Genuine right. curiosity, it, such an important mm-hmm. term. So if if and, and this is why this is why you know on diversity, right? Uh, I have I have a, a a view on that that's that, that says this whole push for more diverse management teams has a decent chance of ending badly because we're putting diversity along with with conversational styles that are anti-diverse right um and so it's just going to end up being frustrating i think diversity can make a huge huge positive difference uh in in company performance but only if we teach people how to make the most of diverse opinions so let's just say, for sake of argument, that that subordinate in the blue-green situation is in in the blue is um, I don't know a South Asian and thinks blue because experiences in Indian uh, he's he, he or she's been working in in the Indian sub for that many and and has has a whole bunch of experiences from them that the the green uh, guy just do, doesn't imagine right. If the green guy isn't curious about how did you get to blue? And you know what? I've been to India twice. He spent 10 years in our Indian sub, and then he went to the UK sub, and then he went to the, the Korean sub, and now he's now he's here at head office in Canada. Um, man, I'm curious. Why, you know, what is it about that that got him to, to blue? If you got that, then diversity is awesome. Awesome. On these wonderful words, uh, Roger, I'm thinking that the the Indian would probably have green because the flag, and the American might have blue because the flag. But <laughs> let's just leave it at that and sure. allow for um, a smile, some some mm-hmm. uh, good sense of humor. Roger, please thank you so much for for being on my show and sharing your thoughts. Um, your book, A New Way to Think: Your Guide to Superior Management Effectiveness. How can someone track you down, follow what you're up to, um, and or connect with you as you see fit? Sure. Uh, three ways. Uh, I, I, I would say one, I've organized all my writing on my website. So that's www.rogerl. You have to remember my mis- middle initial. Roger L stands L. for? Lloyd. Yes. Lloyd. Roger Lloyd. Not David Lloyd. Roger no, Lloyd. No, so it's Roger, uh, rogerlmartin.com. If it's Roger Martin, you'll get a real estate agent in Houston who is very, Uh-oh. very uh, kind and generous and forward thing, things to me. But but so www.rogerlmartin.com. Uh, I have Twitter is at Roger L. Martin. Um, and I've been writing a medium series, which which I referred to earlier. Every Monday for the last 75 weeks, I've written a piece on medium on playing to win practitioner insights and that's another way to to see what i'm uh i'm thinking and the and the and the one that i just did on monday was on analogy uh which we uh which we came 
uh, came to. The next is going to be disruption. Uh, oh, so on Monday, Monday, look for look for uh, how to think about disruption. We'll be putting those in the show notes, Roger. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing your thoughts. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. I'd do it again. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.